Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has the MCU back on top at the box office, but what do I think of the movie? I have my in-depth spoiler thoughts right now. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merle here with my spoiler review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and I have to say right up top that I apologize for the fact that this is coming out on Sunday. I meant to have this review out on Friday or even yesterday and something happened. I was out of commission for like three and a half days. I was sick in bed. I have no idea what it was. The doctors could tell me what it wasn't, which it wasn't COVID and it wasn't the flu, but whatever it was wiped me out. So I am way behind on my production schedule. I'm going to be making up a lot of it next week. There will also be a little bit of an extended ad break in the middle of this episode as I try to catch up to some obligations. So thanks for sticking around for that. Uh, So I'm here a little bit later than I wanted to be, but of course it's only the big movie kicking off the summer release schedule, right? No big deal. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, of course, we'll be talking about the box office for the film on Charts with Dan later this week. But let's talk about the movie itself because I did my non-spoiler review uh, back last week when the embargo dropped. And I have to say that it is one of the reviews that I would say I've gotten the most, well, I mean, I guess a lot of it you would call pushback because it was people that disagreed with my thoughts on the movie. Even before it came out, nobody had seen it. But also even when it did come out, and when you look at the other critics as well, I would say that I was probably a little more down on the movie than most people. There were a lot of people that absolutely loved this film, and that's completely okay. I've always said my job here as a critic is to share my thoughts and opinions, not to tell you why you should share my thoughts and opinions. My only minor point of defense would be that I got a lot of people talking about uh, my personal reaction to the scenes of the film involving Rocket and his friends. Uh, I said that they uh, were somewhat disturbing for me, uh, just from an animal cruelty angle, and there were people that called me, um, at best, soft. And look, I understand, not everybody responds to things differently, and there were some people that thought it was ridiculous to respond to how those characters were treated in the way that I did, but you also have to understand that different things affect people differently. I'm very sensitive to those sorts of things. My partner Mara is very sensitive to those sorts of things. And also, and I shared this on the channel, uh, we lost a pet in the last several months. And so even more so than usual, those kinds of things we're still very receptive to. It's a very kind of a fresh, raw thing to us still. And of course, you're always free to disagree with anything that I say here on this channel. But the number of people that were completely dismissing it. Um, was a little bit discouraging because, you know, as with everything, it's all about context and depiction. Um, You know, I I don't start tearing up when uh, Ron Burgundy's dog gets kicked off the bridge in Anchorman because that's a completely different depiction of the same sort of act. It's all about how it is depicted in the film. I thought that the movie went a little bit overboard with its depictions. Many people disagreed with me. I'm not here telling you that you're dumb to not have been affected. I'm not like, well, you have a cold, stony heart if you weren't affected by this. That was the only kind of discouraging thing with my non-spoiler review. The rest of it, a lot of people disagreeing with my general thoughts, and that's totally fine. So the goal here, we're going to kind of put the other stuff behind us. The goal here, I'm going to break the movie down a little bit further, go into the specific plot points, which will kind of help illuminate some parts of the movie that I thought could have used a little bit of work or that didn't quite hit right for me, and also some parts of the movie that I thought did work for me. It's what I like to do with a lot of these bigger films is really go in-depth. One thing that I did do, you know, because I did have sort of an emotional reaction the first time, was to go see the movie again. So all of these thoughts are kind of me going back. And the first thing I want to be clear about with this movie is that I didn't hate it. 
at all. Like almost every movie that Marvel has put out since Avengers Endgame, um, I was very mixed on it. And that's generally been my feeling if you go back and look at almost every single review I've done for a Disney Plus show or for a Marvel movie. The MCU has gone for me from a franchise that I liked almost every movie that they made up until Avengers Endgame. Post-Endgame, I've been very mixed on most of them. Sometimes mixed positive, sometimes mixed negative, and Guardians 3 is right there in that mix. I will say that I liked it better than, say, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, I liked it more than Quantumania. I liked it more than Thor Love and Thunder. So if we're in that kind of mix of things, I'd say it's probably in the upper part of that middle part. And let's start out with an issue that really stood out to me even more so on my rewatch of the film, which is tone. I mentioned it in my non-spoiler review, the fact that the movie has two very distinct tones. Now you can have that. My issue is with how the movie juggles those tones because you have a very dark Guardians film here on one hand, a, a film that is much darker than the previous films. It's about the characters, particularly Peter Quill and Rocket, reconciling with the traumas of their past. And then you also have the more traditional Guardians film, the good time Guardians, the rock and roll Guardians, the jokes and quips and everything else, and they can coexist, and a couple of times they do, but there were some other times in the movie where I think that the movie just sort of hits the brakes too hard and kind of leaves you reeling, not quite knowing what you're supposed to make of a certain scene or sequence. For example, let's take the sequence at Orgocorp, which in general to me reflected the tone best of the past Guardians films. You have the needle drop as everybody's dropping down in their suits. We have a bit of a serious beat for Quill to kind of have his heart to heart with Gamora. And then you have the funny scene that follows where he's mixed up the intercom channels. Black is for orange, yellow is for green. Green is for red, and red is for yellow. No, yellow is for yellow. And after that, we have a sequence of some pretty funny stuff. We've got Nathan Fillion and his Orgo Sentry and talking about the boss's nephew and the guy. Oh, yeah, I have one of those guys. I thought that that was a very funny scene. You have Drax and Mantis doing their kind of infiltration bit, and Mantis makes the guard fall in love with Drax. I thought that was very well done. You have Quill and Nebula and Gamora kind of split off, and they're uh, getting Rocket's file, and Quill's talking about Gamora's past. And again, I thought that that was a very good interaction between those three characters and some dumbass earth dude who met a girl fell in love that girl died and then came back a total dick and to that point in the film it was really kind of working the best on that guardians level for me and then we hit this weird note where one of the guards comes up and blasts drax with this big gun and leaves this like scorching hole and then he gets blasted again and he's like down on the ground the music gets like super dark and somber and then nebula gets blasted and she's like spitting blood out on the floor the weird thing is like you have this very kind of up tempo sequence up 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 and then we hit a very big down note and it's like this like like mortal danger, like we, it seems like are supposed to believe that in this moment, that Drax and or Nebula could, could honestly die, just a horrible death here. Uh, but then they just make their escape and the severity of that moment is never really ever referenced again. I think that there were some darker moments, some down notes that were added to the film in a way that I'm not quite sure they needed to be. And I don't know if that was James Gunn saying that he wanted to remind the audience of the stakes of the film. But I think that the stakes were pretty well established elsewhere and were really paid off elsewhere in the movie. And that really stood out to me on my second watch of the movie of just why we hit that down note there. And I actually found this happening quite a bit throughout the movie. And I think part of it is that Rocket's origin story 
is spaced out throughout the film. So, you know, we have a little bit at the very beginning and then, you know, Rocket's obviously very mortally injured. And then throughout the movie, we keep flashing back and flashing forward. And a lot of the times when we are flashing forward or flashing back, it didn't really seem to be motivated. Like I couldn't figure out why we were doing that flash forward here or that flashback there. And part of me wonders if it might have been, it would have been a more risky choice, I would say, creatively, but if it might have been a more narratively smart choice to take all of Rocket's backstory and compress it into basically one chunk, and you put that somewhere in the film. I think maybe you put it after that infiltration sequence, after they go and get Rocket's file, but before they go to Counter-Earth to meet the High Evolutionary for a couple of reasons. Number one, it breaks up what are essentially two back-to-back fetch quests in the movie. So the Guardians have to go to Orgocorp to get Rocket's file, but then it turns out that the file that they need isn't there, so then they have to go to Counter-Earth to get the file out of the computer uh, in the guy's head. I think that those two beats maybe would have seemed a little bit less repetitive if you put this Rocket backstory in between them. And I also think it makes sense that we as the audience really meet and get to hate the High Evolutionary at this point in the film, right before the Guardians meet the High Evolutionary on Counter-Earth. But part of me also wonders if there was a consideration to do that and James Gunn or someone else said, we cannot put all of this stuff together because it is just way too much emotional. You have this beat and, you know, the cuteness, but also just kind of the body horror of the mutilation and, you know, baby Rocket with his skull exposed. I mean, there's some pretty... I still think pretty horrific imagery there, at least from a body horror standpoint. And then, of course, you have the cute stuff. But but part of the cute stuff for me was I, I never for a minute sat there and thought that any of those animals except for Rocket was going to get out of that situation alive. And I almost wonder if you could have put like a like a misdirect there to make us think that Lila or maybe one of them had survived and then it would be even more shocking when they all died, because it was almost this like hanging sense of doom, this inevitability that you just knew that the other shoe was about to drop here. I just wonder if there was a sense that these had to be spaced out because otherwise it would be almost too much of an emotional burden for the audience to overcome to get back to the good time Guardians beats that we're going to follow, you know, Drax hitting the kid with a dodgeball, etc. And that again says to me, you know, if that was the case, maybe there were a couple of beats too many where you didn't have to go quite that dark. Maybe you don't have to see the bodies bleeding out on the ground, or maybe you don't have to actually see the life draining out of eyes. Maybe not. Again, this is me speculating and me kind of saying, like, maybe it could have worked this way, maybe it could have worked that way. But the way that it is structured, I don't think quite works because of that kind of stop-start tonal dissonance that a lot of the movie has. Let's talk about the High Evolutionary, though, because I was able to mention him briefly without going into spoilers in the non-spoiler review, and I- I'm going to underscore again that Chikuri Uwuji did a really good job of playing the character as written, because obviously you hate him. And I actually liked his motivation as written in the script a lot. The idea of this, this creator, this wannabe creator who wants to make the perfect society, and he makes a creature that surpasses even him And it drives him crazy because he can't replicate it. And he's got to capture this thing and try to dissect it and figure out, like, you know, how did I make something that was so good that it excelled even me and that I can't replicate? I think that's actually really good 
motivation and, and a really good backstory for that character. I don't need another speech by some impotent whack job whose mother didn't love him rationalizing why he needs to conquer the universe. I'm not trying to conquer the universe. I'm perfecting it. But particularly in the second and third acts, I don't think that the script gave him much to do other than to scream and yell. I think most of act three for the high evolutionary was just screaming, bring me 89P13. I would have liked just one more beat just to learn a little bit more about him as a character outside of his conflict with Rocket that could have rounded him out just a bit because it was a good start but I feel like he was a bit one-dimensional, and, and, it's, and it's a problem that the Marvel Universe has had, honestly, from the very beginning. The idea that your villains don't quite have enough depth at the expense of your heroes being very three-dimensional, and we got a very three-dimensional look at a lot of our heroes in this movie, particularly Rocket. I was left wanting just a little bit on the high evolutionary, not from a performance standpoint, and not because I didn't think that he was a, a loathsome villain, but I think that he could have been a more interesting one. Earth would be a fabulous place were it not for the ignorance and bigotry. Okay. It inspired me to create counter -earth. I don't care. All of the good and none of the bad. We've got so much more to get into, but before we do that, I want to thank one of this week's sponsors, Mint Mobile. One frustration that nearly every mobile customer shares is trying to figure out your plan. I tried switching a while back and it was nearly impossible to compare plans between companies because no one could tell me what I was actually paying for or even how much it would be each month. Well, the answer to this problem is here and it's called Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, no binding contracts or ridiculous promotions, no charges that you don't find out about until six months after you sign up, Every plan at Mint Mobile is straightforward, easy to understand, and it delivers exactly what you pay for. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family, and at Mint Mobile, families start at two lines. All of these plans come with unlimited talk and text, as well as high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan, and that means you can also keep your number along with your existing contacts. Get premium wireless from just 15 bucks a month with no unexpected surprises at mintmobile.com slash Merle. That's mintmobile.com slash Merle. Seriously, you will make your wallet very happy at mintmobile.com slash Merle. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. And I want you to think real quick about just how much time you spend on your phone every day on social media, shopping, or just reading the news and browsing the internet. But what you may not know is that many carriers also collect that browsing information. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and sell it to third parties. All it takes is one tap of a button and all of your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does this shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN also protects all of your network data so that you can stay private even when using your favorite apps. And the best part is that one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. Right now on my account, I'm running ExpressVPN on my laptop, my phone, and my iPad, and it's simple and easy to use on all of them. When your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross invasion of privacy. You can either keep letting them cash in, or you can visit expressvpn.com slash Merle to get the same VPN that I use. Take back your online privacy today and use my link to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash Merle, M-U-R-R-E-L-L, expressvpn.com slash Merle. Quill. I don't think so. 
Well, what I'm trying to say is... Peter, you know this is an open line, right? What? We're listening to everything you're saying. And it is painful. Now, what did work in this movie, without question, and it has worked from the very beginning, is the core cast. And they all know their characters, whether they've been there from the first Guardians movie, whether they were added in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And one thing that I will give James Gunn credit for is that he's very smartly spun these characters off into their own sort of storylines and and even pairings at times that work really well. Drax and Mantis, for example, was a combination that I wouldn't really have foreseen working out. It feels genuinely emotional at the end um, when Mantis leaves and Drax is is crying. And Dave Bautista, by the way, is such a strong actor. I mean, to see him develop, he used to be able to do the humor beats, but you see him in this movie and other movies, He's actually a really, really good actor, and Pon Clementif as well has had a great grasp on this character of Mantis from the very beginning. I liked the arc of the two of them, how they kind of combined them over the course of the films and then paid off that friendship in this movie. I also liked where they took both of those characters individually. I'm going to give the movie credit there. Uh, Mantis, for example. Another reason I recommended the holiday special is because they dropped this thing that Mantis is Peter Quill's sister. But what I liked about the movie is that that didn't kind of become her identifying point for this film. It actually was kind of superfluous. They dropped it a couple of times, but that didn't really become important at all. It's almost like, why did they even establish that? Instead, I think what you saw in this film was Mantis kind of coming into her own and understanding her power and the limitations of her power and the possibilities of her power. And I liked at the end that she said, you know, I'm gonna go my own way because I was with Ego, I was with the Guardians, I have to be me. She's almost kind of taking her own advice that she was giving Quill earlier in the film. So I liked where the movie took her, and I thought that that was a very satisfying narrative arc. And I have to say the same for Drax, because the whole Drax the Destroyer persona from the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy back in 2014 was in many ways a front for a grieving father. I mean, his entire family was slaughtered and he was out for revenge. And so for Drax to find through his adventures as a Guardian of the Galaxy, this surrogate family, and you see the man that he was before his family was taken from him and this opportunity to kind of finish the life that he started. I thought that was a very narratively and emotionally satisfying conclusion to Drax's arc over these three films and well played by Dave Bautista and well written by James Gunn. Also, for all my qualms about how the movie depicted Rocket's story, it's an undeniably powerful story. And again, if it hadn't been so spaced out throughout the film, I think it could have had even more power. Bradley Cooper's vocal performance, voice work is is not easy because you have to convey emotion knowing that the animators are going to to do that to the character that you're either voicing or sometimes mocapping but at the same time you can't just you know I mean sometimes I guess you are literally phoning that performance in but you can't phone it in emotionally and I think that Bradley Cooper's performance got better in every single film as you learn more about Rocket and as, as his character got more dimension I liked the journey that he's taken from the first movie to this one. And I think that that was James Gunn's goal with this movie was it wasn't going to be the last Guardians movie, but he wanted to bring every character sort of, uh, not full circle necessarily, uh, but certainly on an arc from when we met them to where they are now. One of the characters that I wasn't quite sure about where James Gunn took him was Peter Quill, who's been our protagonist. I know they said that it's always been Rocket's story. And 
Rocket, to be fair, has been James Gunn's favorite character, admittedly, on his part, uh, since the very beginning. But I think that Peter Quill really certainly was the focus of film one and film two. And one of the themes of those two movies, and really kind of the expressed, stated theme of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, was that family isn't necessarily your blood. It is the people that you find, the people that become your family. I mean, that's that was Yondu's entire point in the last Guardians film. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. So it was a little bit abrupt for me in this movie for Mantis to go to Quill and say, well, you've actually just kind of been running from something ever since you left Earth, which you you should go back to Earth and and see if your grandfather's there and check on him. Because Peter, to my knowledge and to my recollection, that didn't ever really seem to be a driving force for him. And to me, it sort of interrupted his whole journey which was finding this family, finding the Guardians, and this sort of like opened up a new desire for him. It just in film three, that reunion with his grandfather was emotional, um, but it wasn't a very satisfying arc for me for his character. I, I just, I'm not quite sure why that direction was taken, but that's not for me to know. And I think maybe part of the reason why Quill's arc wasn't quite narratively satisfying for me might have also had something to do with Gamora. I, I've theorized, and I did in my non-spoiler review, that maybe Gamora's arc in the Guardians movies was interrupted by the de- decision to kill her off in Infinity War. Um, you know, James Gunn has said that wasn't necessarily his choice, but he's part of a larger universe, and so he's just got to roll with it. And I'm not saying with this movie necessarily that you have to get those two back together and just go back to the status quo, uh, but the way that they handled both of their resolutions in this movie, kind of in a similar way, didn't quite hit as hard for me as I think they could have, because with Gamora, the message was sort of, Quill's Gamora found her family in the Guardians, and then this Gamora found her family with the Ravagers, but that's not really set up for us at all. Like, we know that she's with the Ravagers at the beginning of the movie, and then at the end, she comes home, and everyone's like, Gamora, and Sylvester Stone's like, welcome home. But that's not really set up anywhere, except for at the end, when we're sort of told, and this is Gamora's home. Overall, if that's going to be her arc, I think that's okay, because I think it would be a little unrealistic for this Gamora to just repeat what happened to her alternate self. I just don't think the thing with the Ravagers being her ultimate family was very well narratively established. And again, maybe this was a cut scene. Maybe this is just the victim of having too many characters. Maybe James Gunn just didn't feel that it was lacking, and it's something on my part. I will do something a little risky here, which is that often I feel like when a critic or somebody that's talking about one of these movies pitches a version of something that could happen, it comes off as like, well, what I would have done would have been, and that's not necessarily me saying that. I'm not saying like, well, if I had made Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, this is how I would have done it. But I was driving home from the second viewing and I was thinking to myself, like, well, what, what could a narrative resolution have been that, you know... I might have been a little bit more satisfied by, and I came up with an idea of like, what if, we'll do the, this is a what if, this is a Marvel what if, this is not an I would have, it's a what if, what if uh, Nebula, who's on the bridge of the high evolutionary ship, she goes up there so that she can help to guide it, and they can connect with nowhere and evacuate everybody, instead of leaving the bridge, Nebula stays there, and basically keeps the ship stable so that everybody can escape and essentially sacrifices herself. She, she doesn't make it out of the movie. Karen Gillan, I thought, was great as that character, but I also think that Nebula's actually had a really great narrative arc already. She established that she had a comlink, so what if Nebula stays on the bridge? She's able to contact Gamora 
and basically kind of encourages Gamora. There's this whole thing about giving a second chance. Everybody deserves a second chance. She basically tells Gamora that the Guardians became her family. They gave her a second chance. Let them do the same for you. And kind of pushes her to give the Guardians a shot at becoming that second family. And so I think that you could have some some emotional uh, finality between the two sisters there. And then I would also uh, perhaps postulate that instead of Adam Warlock saving Quill uh, from the vacuum of space, which, I mean, he must have been milliseconds away from being a goner because when his face just went, <laughs> again, more body horror, I was convinced. I was like, whoa, Chris Pratt really doesn't want to do any more Guardians movies. But, you know, as always happens when people are in the vacuum of space, except for Yondu, uh, he was fine. But instead of Adam Warlock kind of swooping in to save him, what if it was Gamora? And it's kind of a, a mirror of what happens in Guardians of the Galaxy, the original film. Uh, and kind of a thing where, you know, Peter recognizes something in Gamora and saves her. We have this version of Gamora who f finally recognizes something in Quill, uh, his potential, the good, etc., and saves him. And so you have a kind of a, a mirror. It's like poetry. It rhymes. You know, you have this thing that that's kind of a, a callback to the original film. And then you don't necessarily have to romantically link them up, but it does kind of bring Gamora in, I think, with the Guardians, and you establish that they are going to go out and find whatever they're going to be. Or maybe Quill still goes back to Earth and says, you know what, I've chased you once, I have to chase this now, and so they don't end up together, but Gamora ends up as part of this new Guardians of the Galaxy team. My overall point is that I think that there were ways to go that were a little bit more narratively satisfying, at least in my opinion, that could have been set up better and that could have had a little bit more emotional resonance between these characters than some of the ways that they went. And I would love to know the process behind writing the screenplay and why certain you know particular choices were made. And I think a byproduct of this sort of alternate ending would have also been to not have Adam Warlock be the one that saves Quill uh, because, I mean, just as much as the first time, maybe even more so in my second viewing, I, I just don't really see why he was included in this film other than the fact that he was teased in the second movie. Just from a plot standpoint, he's pretty superfluous almost to everything that happens. The most major thing that he does is to mortally wound Rocket at the beginning of the movie. That could have been done any number of ways. Uh, and even tonally with his character. I mean, we see him first with the Guardians, you know, dad rock music. And then he comes in and he almost kills Rocket. He has a quip and then he beats the crap out of Drax. And then he's introduced as the comic relief. And then he literally just kind of flits in and out of the movie whenever convenient. And then swoops in to say Quill at the end of the day. And by the end of the movie, he's like, oh, and now he's one of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I just don't really see how this movie is better for having Adam Warlock in it. And I could see a lot of ways where it could be improved by not including him and giving some of these things to other characters. Um, that's no offense to Will Poulter. I think he did a really good job with what he was given. I just feel like he was in this movie as an obligation because people would be like, well, where's Adam Warlock? Instead of putting him in where there was a real need for that character. And I think that they maybe could have used him better in either another Guardians movie or another MCU movie down the line. Regardless of my thoughts, good and bad, though, it's obvious that James Gunn has a lot of love for these characters. And I think that he's a very gifted filmmaker because there are sequences in this film that work great. The Orgo Corp sequence I mentioned is really good, both stylistically and just from a humor level. The No Sleep Till Brooklyn fight, that one-shot hallway was great. The emotional beats for a lot of the characters, even the ones that I don't think made the most story sense, 
The emotional beats were well executed. The overall look, the style, the design of the film, there's a lot to like. It just didn't feel quite as final and as, as polished as I'd hoped James Gunn's big culmination of this Guardians trilogy would be. It could be that Marvel put some restrictions on James Gunn. He may have wanted to go further, maybe kill a character or two, and they said, you know, actually, we've got plans for that character. Or, you know what, we really need to get Quill on Earth because we have this plan to put him in Secret Invasion, so can you get him here? Maybe it was that James Gunn had trouble navigating around where the other movies put some of his characters in order to get them to where they were in this film. Or, and this is probably the most likely, James Gunn told exactly the story that he wanted to tell, and it doesn't matter what I think, because this is what he wanted to do. This is the movie that he wanted to make, and it's the one that's in theaters now. And you know what? A lot of you out there, and trust me, I've heard you, love this movie. And you don't have any of these issues that I have. And again, to reiterate, that's great. My job is to kind of be here and give you my opinion and give you my thoughts and postulate on these what-if things. It's not to tell you what to think. And it's not to you know reach through the screen to you, the viewer, and say like, well, you know how you love this movie? Well, here's why you're wrong and I'm right. That's not the kind of critic that I am. I just love the discussion. I love the discussion. I love the discourse. I'm sure a lot of you agree with some of the things I've said. I'm sure a lot of you disagree with some of the things that I've said. That's what this is all supposed to be about. So what did you think of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? Was it the finale that you hoped for? Did you have some of these story issues that I had? Or was this the perfect culmination of a nearly decade-long film trilogy? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, stay tuned right here on the channel. I've got a big video coming up this week going deep into the Writer's Guild strike, which is currently going on. I was going to do this video last week, but one of the mixed blessings of being out of commission for a few days is there was a lot of developments in the last couple days regarding the strike. We're going to be doing a deep dive on that here on the channel. Of course, charts with Dan, reviews, and everything else. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to check the description below for our sponsor information. And as always, until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye.